There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Den of Geek podcast featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com as well as other behind the scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 19, the late edition of G News for October 2018, in which we take a look at some of the scarier television and movie news just before Halloween. Yeah, and I think we snuck in a game story as well in there, so a little bit of everything. And our bonus item also kind of fits with the theme. We talked to Taryn Matharu, the author of The Summoner's Handbook, which just came out at the beginning of October, and that's the final piece in the uh, Summoner's series that he's known for so we'll talk to him a little bit later but let's go ahead and get into our spooky news for the latter half of october all right mike i think i got a good one right off the bat i mean i don't know about other school systems but i would suspect that like ours every student reads arthur miller's classic play the crucible sometime before they get out of high school sure sure right now Though there was only circumstantial evidence against him, John Proctor was convicted of witchcraft and hanged in 1692 during the Salem witch trials, setting the stage for Miller to retell the tale in light of the McCarthy communist witch hunts of the 1950s. So what former high school student now successfully integrated into the workforce wouldn't want a piece of the man who haunted their waking dreams while they were forced (laughs) to read the play aloud in class? Yeah. John Proctor's former home can be yours for a paltry $600,000. Wow. (laughs) Featuring six bedrooms and two baths, the 4,000-square-foot home built in 1638 has been placed on the market with Jay Barrett and company. And the exterior is a deep gray color with a red door. And I'm thinking, wouldn't the red door attract the devil? But maybe not. (laughs) But it's appropriately gothic. (laughs) Yes. Now, according to the realtor's description, this first period registered historic home features period detail with the functionality of today's needs. Large eat-in kitchen with plenty of workspace. The dining room can accommodate your largest holiday gathering. All the bedrooms offer storage and ample space to relax. Enjoy the summers around your oversized in-ground pool. Now, the home's owner died earlier this month, and there's no word yet on whether the structure will be bought for public showings, but its history is undeniable. I mean, Proctor was an early critic of the mass hysteria that gripped Salem during the witch trials, calling the afflicted girls who leveled charges frauds and liars. So for much more detail from the historical record and Arthur Miller's play, check out Tony Sokol's piece, Salem Witch Trial House Up for Sale. Okay, very cool. My uh, my sister actually lives within, I would say, maybe not walking distance, but biking distance of that house. So definitely familiar with that area. Cool. But uh, speaking of haunted houses and things like that, I'm going to go ahead and start off with speculation about whether there will be a season two for haunt, The Haunting of Hill House, which has been very successful for Netflix. Now, we've covered The Haunting of Hill House 
I think at least twice already on G News and very happy that we chose to cover that based on how successful this show has been. Because although Netflix doesn't release viewership information regarding their original content based only on fan and viewer reaction and maybe even critical reaction, it's not hard to imagine that this original horror series, The Haunting of Hill House, has been a massive success. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Well, I would. And I'm only one episode in because Wayne and I are going to cover it. And I don't want to get too far ahead. But the only thing that bothers me is Netflix's reaction to the Marvel series. So what's going on with that? Who knows? You know, critical support from the community doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come back. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But hopefully it will. That's true. It's just not structured that way. That's what's crazy about this particular one. And as we've talked about in the previous editions of G News, The Haunting of Hill House comes from acclaimed horror director Mike Flanagan. And it's a very, 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 very loose adaptation of Shirley Jackson's classic horror novel of the same name. The show follows the Crane family and their experiences at the titular Hill House and how the trauma of living with ghosts, both literal and metaphorical, affects their lives as adults. And before we talk about the season two possibilities, which is really what this article is about, here's writer-director Mike Flanagan talking about how different it is to maintain suspense for the 10 hours of a Netflix series as opposed to a two-hour movie. In 90 minutes, you can get away with scaring people three or four times. For something like this, over 10 hours, the rules are very different. It got to a point where the genre was content just to startle people. Now we're seeing audiences are much more sophisticated. In our show, I wanted to go back to when horror was actually about something much more profound than just being afraid. So now if you've seen the series, you know that the story of the Crane family pretty much came to a close. But how can Netflix not capitalize on the overwhelming reception that The Haunting of Hill House has received? And Flanagan says he loves the idea of perhaps an anthology series. But, quote, I don't want to speculate too much about season two until Netflix and Paramount and Amblin let us know if they want one. What I will say, though, is that as far as I've ever been concerned with this, the story of the Crane family is told. It's done. (laughs) We toyed with a cliffhanger ending and we toyed with other ideas, but ultimately we really felt like the story demanded a certain kind of closure from us. And we were happy to close the book on that family. That said, I think more than anything, the show is about haunted places and haunted people And there's no shortage of either. So there's any number of things we could do in or out of Hill House. So that kind of gives us hope that there might be a possibility for something else. But if you want to read more, check out Alec Bojalid's article, Will There Be Haunting of Hill House Season 2? Cool. All right. Well, living in the age of the reboot, we often overlook the artistry that embodies a sincere homage to a writer or director. And whether it's Hitchcock or any of the many horror franchises that seemed to spring up in the late 70s and 80s, one director we shouldn't forget is Halloween's creative force, John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. Now, not only does 2014's film It Follows honor the works of Carpenter, but also to the age in which the horror master really began to make a name for himself. It Follows is littered with horror film influences of the 70s and 80s, but what makes the film so intriguing on another level is the fact that it's difficult to pin down the precise era in which the film's story takes place. I mean, typical touchstones like available technology, everyday means of transportation don't really give us much, which adds to the disorienting feeling with which the viewer must contend, which 
is I'm sure what he's going for and, and kind of like it, you know, yeah, it's kind of Hitchcockian in a way. <laughs> yeah. Now, since the earliest days of filmmaking, there have been horror movies and they all share a common trait. They typically adapt the previous century's greatest works of horror literature. First horror movie out of Thomas Edison's studio was a brief and lumbering silent 1910 feature Frankenstein. But even before that film, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had been adapted twice. Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula was adapted and produced the horror classic Nosferatu. And by the time 1940 rolled around, Dracula, The Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Wolfman had all made appearances on the big screen. Now, whether it's the Rocky Horror Picture Show or a Scooby-Doo cartoon, audiences continue to flock to films designed to scare the pants off them. All of which brings us back to David Robert Mitchell's second film, It Follows. Mitchell borrows heavily from the conventions of a certain type of horror story and reinvents them for a modern time without really updating them. And in many respects, the it in It Follows can be viewed as an STD with extremely deadly consequences. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Now, Mitchell lets the audience see the obvious allegorical context, such as when the protagonist, Jay, is introduced to it after a tryst in her boyfriend's car. And, (laughs) you know, Mike, I'm really just scratching the surface here of David Crow's piece. So if you're a horror film fan, I urge you to check out David Crow's Den of Geek piece, It Follows, A Homecoming for 80s Horror. Yeah, and I'll tell you, we feature David Crow's articles a lot in our movie features. He's just such a great writer, such a great way with words and things like that. And he really pays homage to some of the classic directors such as John Carpenter. And in fact, my next piece is about Halloween. How could it not be? (laughs) Which has taken the uh, box office by storm right here before the actual holiday Halloween. So David Crow caught up with the director of the new version of Halloween at Toronto's International Film Festival, just as the hype machine was getting started. And now that the amazing audience numbers and the critical reviews are in, David recalls in his article that at the time of TIFF, Green was just even keeled and happy to talk about Halloween the same way he would for any other movie. So in fact, the filmmaker he noticed just sort of loves talking about movies in any form, like any former film student would. In fact, Green told David that when he would talk with his friends at North Carolina School for the Arts, he said, we always loved the movie Halloween because of its lack of supernatural, you know? It felt like it could happen anywhere, any town, anyone. And slasher movies as a whole were just as obviously a part of every film student's vernacular at that time, for sure. So he kind of grew up at the time when you know, Halloween was already a classic. And so for him to be directing the remake must've been quite a treat. Yeah. And that's a good point. I didn't really think about the lack of a supernatural element to these slasher films. Right. And his in particular with the feel of a supernatural uh, killer rather than just a serial killer, mostly because of the mask and other things was imitated quite a bit after that. But green wanted Halloween to appeal both to diehard fans and to, as he put it, unsuspecting teenagers going to see a horror movie and not have to necessarily have had the backstory and facts of the original film. In fact, Green went on to say, if I have to explain the cult of Thorn in the opening 15 minutes of the movie, there's just going to be a lot of talking. 
And I think there's something transcendent and universal and timeless about a dude with a knife (laughs) walking around without a specific agenda or ambition. But part of it, of course, I mean, how could you blame him, was to duplicate the feeling that Green himself had in his childhood, trying everything he could to see Halloween, the movie his parents wouldn't allow him to see. He says, I think that's important, too, to be the movie that kids aren't allowed to see and beg their parents to let them watch or sneak in with their friends on HBO late at night. You know, those are fun, very sentimental, somewhat disturbing moments of my childhood. If we can screw up the next generation of youth and have them end up as enthusiastic as we are, that's an okay thing. So, and I've, like you said, Dave, this is just a very small piece of David's full interview. And the whole thing reads like that. Just really fun. So if you want to check out more, look up David Crow's article at denivgeek.com called Halloween, how David Gordon Green's horror took shape. And in keeping with our Halloween theme, which the event is just on the horizon, but we've got no new stranger things to fill in those longings for mystery, suspense, <laughs> and horror. But Netflix is not leaving subscribers hanging. It's my callback to the John Proctor story. <laughs> Without something to sink their teeth into. Yes, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is a reboot of sorts, but this 10-episode series is so much more. And and obviously, you and I are going to be covering that in a little bit more detail with our monthly podcast, Sci-Fi Fidelity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that very much. I uh, haven't gotten a chance to check out any screeners for this show, so I'm going to be watching it along with everyone else. And it's coming up tomorrow as we record this. So I'm really looking forward to this show. Right. Now, the story opens with Sabrina Spellman, Mad Men's Kiernan Shipka, preparing for her 16th birthday, one that will be commemorated with a dark baptism in which she will declare her devotion to serving Satan. Born of a warlock father and a human mother who died when she was an infant, Sabrina finds herself torn between her two distinct parts of her personality. Now, initially, the focus of the season is Sabrina's dark baptism and whether or not she will decide to fully embrace her birthright. Once this storyline is dealt with, the series engages in some narrative wheel spinning in the form of the no frills, dark Hogwarts goings on at the Academy of Unseen Arts. And there's really an extended exorcist homage in this as well. And, and, you know, this article, as I'll mention, is a spoiler-free look at the entire 10-episode season. Well, that statement that you just shared maybe had a little bit of criticalness to it, but I kind of like that description. <laughs> they might call it narrative wheel spinning, but no frills, dark Hogwarts and uh, exorcist homages. I'm, I'm in for that. Yeah. Now, it's difficult to not bring the Charmed reboot into the discussion (laughs) when discussing Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. But rest assured, these are two very different takes on the ever popular young adult witch. And we're also going to be taking a look at Charmed in Sci-Fi Fidelity next month. Yeah, that's going to be a fun combo. (laughs) Yeah, it will. Because it's two shows that are definitely outside of our wheelhouse. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the series drops on Netflix, as you said, October 26th, which is tomorrow. We're recording on the 25th. So for a spoiler-free review that covers the entire season, be sure to read Chris Cummins' Chilling Adventures of Sabrina review, Archie's Teenage Witch Gets a Bold, Dark Makeover. How's that for a headline? (laughs) All right. Well, my final piece, I had to include a Castlevania piece, and there's lots of Castlevania articles on Den of Geek right now. 
both for the game and for the Netflix series, including an interview that we did with Adi Shankar that will be shared on Sci-Fi Fidelity in November as well. And very excited to see that show return. But as for the inspiration, I wasn't aware how many Castlevania titles there were. The original game released on the Famicom disc system. I don't even know what that is on September 26th, 1986. And since then, nearly 40 titles have been published across just about every significant system in gaming history from the NES onward. That being said, Castlevania fans haven't gotten a new game since 2014's Lord of Shadows 2 released to little fanfare on the aging PS3 and Xbox 360. And worse yet is the fact that Castlevania is owned by Konami, which has made it clear that it's more interested in mobile apps and pachinko machines these days than working on big-budget AAA titles. So this list that Jason M. Gallagher put together is kind of a reminiscent piece, a nostalgic piece, if you will, of uh, some of the 40 titles that have been out there. He calls it the 10 best Castlevania games ever made. And I'm just going to highlight a couple that that I enjoyed. Uh, One was, of course, Castlevania Curse of Darkness. And it's not a perfect one. Some people even kind of questioned in the comments area whether or not this one should have been on the list. But it was brought up during our Adi Shankar interview uh, because uh, season two will bring in some of the characters from this one. Curse of Darkness earns a spot on this list, though, because of the art style. And that's why I really liked it. The gorgeous levels and character designs would serve as an inspiration for a manga spinoff that was published by Tokyopop. The game is set three years after the events of Castlevania three, and it offers a fresh story and a new protagonist, leaving the Belmont family behind in favor of Hector, a devil forge master who was previously employed by Dracula. And like I said, will be showing up in Netflix's uh, Castlevania season two. Trevor Belmont does become playable, however, along with his trusty whip once the main game has been beaten. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And then the other title I wanted to mention, which I only got to play on someone else's. I never got the Xbox 360. I played Curse of Darkness on the Xbox. But uh, Castlevania Lords of Shadow was a really great one I played on my brother-in-law's Xbox 360. It was also available on PlayStation, I believe. And when Konami first announced that title, it was just called Lords of Shadow because they actually wanted to keep the fact that they were completely rebooting the Castlevania franchise a secret. But in the end, this Castlevania title was the most successful one at transitioning to 3D because, of course, Castlevania is mostly known for its side-scrolling origins. 
Well, I'm certainly looking forward to season two of the animated series. I'm not much of a gamer, but did you ask your dad if he remembers Famicom Disk System? <laughs> you would think he would. My dad was huge into early computers. We had Pong, the original Pong, but I've not heard of Famicom. So. Okay. Because well, I, I, I know you've spoken about his you know, yeah. intense interest in all that, so I'll, I'll bet he knows. He was an early adopter of many things, but just 40 titles. I had no idea how many Castlevania titles there were. So if you want to read some of the other ones that made the list, the other eight that I didn't mention, check out 10 Best Castlevania Games Ever Made by Jason M. Gallagher. But our interview segment goes a little bit off the path there, but it does have summoning demons in it. So that's kind of Halloween-y, right? Oh, no question. (laughs) And that's Taryn Mathrew's Summoner series, which is a trilogy of fantasy books. And it also includes a fourth prequel book. And as you'll hear us discuss in the interview with Taryn Mathrew, the story has been described as a mix between Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Pokemon. <laughs> All things that I love. Just before Taryn Mathrew moves on to his next project, a sci-fi novel called The Chosen, which is going to be the first one in the Contender series, we wanted to talk to him about his final entry in the Summoner series, a supplement called The Summoner's Handbook, which is a great illustrated guide formatted as a journal. He's going to tell us all about it, so I'll leave it at that. Here we go with our discussion with Taryn Mathrew. All right, we're here with Taryn Mathrew, author of the Summoner series, which is a trilogy that has legions of fans who are happy to hear that although the story of Fletcher has come to a close of sorts, a new companion novel is here called The Summoner's Handbook. Welcome to the podcast, Taryn. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the Summoner series kind of took an unconventional path to publication through Wattpad and NaNoWriMo. And we certainly have students here in my school building that participate in NaNoWriMo each year. So do you think that the fan-oriented nature of sites like that for original work, as well as kind of the fan fiction reading style of community, was a driving force behind your initial success? Absolutely. So NaNoWriMo, I I didn't really use it so much as a social network, which some people do. Um, It was more of a challenge of writing 50,000 words in a month that I took on myself. But Wattpad, which is um, a kind of, it's often described as the YouTube of books, um, is where I decided to share my work as I was writing it to get encouragement. And to my surprise, the book went viral very quickly. And it was read, I think it was 3 million times in less than six months just on the sample alone. So I never uploaded the whole book to the website. And um, I think now it's sitting at around seven and a half million reads or something like that, still on a sample. But it was that that allowed me to get the interest from publishers uh, around the world and uh, eventually get a book deal. And uh, now the Summoner series is a New York Times bestselling series. It's been translated into 15 languages around the world and counting um, a million copies sold plus and uh yeah, it's um, it's been a, quite an adventure, and I, I've just been really enjoying writing the series for a long while. And it's finally over with. Um, there's a trilogy, uh, The Novice, The Inquisition, The Battle Mage. There's a prequel called The Outcast. Um, and now there's a companion guide called The Summoner's Handbook, which is uh, a self-contained story uh, told in the form of a diary, uh, which is novella length. And then there is also a com- companion guide of sorts where you have all the demons in the books, plus several more that weren't mentioned, illustrated, all the spells illustrated, lots of extra information, um, a detailed fantasy map, and lots and lots of other cool stuff that I think the fans of the Summoner world really get on with. Now, the concept behind the Summoner trilogy has been described as a mixture between 
Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Pokemon, which I, lo- I love that description. Now, I know what that means because I've read it, but can you tell our listeners what elements of those works appear in your series? Because I do think that's a very apt description. So it's um, the story is about an orphan boy, Fletcher, who accidentally summons a demon and then goes to a magical military academy where he learns how to control his powers so that he can eventually become a battle mage and fight in the war against the orcs of the southern jungles. So in that description, you'll see that uh, he summons a demon, and that's very much where the Pokemon comes from. This idea of being able to summon creatures to fight alongside you, they're kind of your pets and companions, you name them, they have different levels. You know, the more powerful a species of demon is, the higher a level it is, and the higher level a summoner you need to be to be able to summon it. Then there's the uh, Magical Military Academy, which is where some of the Harry Potter vibes come from, although um, it's not exactly like Hogwarts. It's very much more focused on the military side of things. So it's about sword training, battle spells, defending yourself, being an officer, uh, that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's perhaps slightly more inspired by the Earthsea Quartets than Harry Potter, but certainly Harry Potter's better known, so that's where the comparison comes from. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the Orcs of the Southern Jungles that I also mentioned in my little blurb. Um, and it's very much a world populated by multiple fantasy races. There are elves, there are dwarves, there are orcs. Um, but I put my own twist on these uh, different races. So, for example, the orcs are very much modeled on the Aztecs and, and they, they fight in, they, they ride rhinos and the smaller counterparts, the goblins, who are kind of their allies, they ride cassowaries. Um, so it's, it's, it's a kind of strange mix, but it's very much Aztec inspired. And uh, they fight with uh, Makulhitls, which are these, uh, these giant kind of swords lined with obsidian, sharp obsidian blades. I remember dwarves, you know, they have their own kind of um, history and mythology, uh, as do the elves, um, who are very much about herding deer although they do also live in trees. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a kind of mishmash, and that's partly where the Lord of the Rings inspirations come from. And also there's a lot of epic battles, which the Lord of the Rings is, uh, at least the film trilogy, is well known for. Now, you mentioned that the Summoner's Handbook, is it's not your conventional guidebook where you just flip through to find your favorite Pokemon or something like that. There's an actual narrative structure. And tell us a little bit about this journal and who we're following and how that works. So the um, the journal uh, tells the story of James Baker. So in the in the first book, uh, Fletcher, the main character um, in the novice, he is gifted a book by a traveling salesman, and that book turns out to be James Baker's journal. James Baker was once a summoner, and um, and his journal has somehow come into the possession of this of this traveling salesman. And it is then that Fletcher finds a scroll that it's called a summoning scroll, which he uh, uses to accidentally summon his salamander demon Ignatius. And this journal, you only ever get to see snippets of it before um, it's taken from Fletcher and the librarian of uh, Vokens Academy, which is the school that he goes to, makes several editions of it and, and adds her own notes to the margin. She keeps it in the library and uh, Fletcher doesn't really see it again. But it's this book that kind of sets Fletcher on his journey and it teaches him a lot about how to be a summoner. So it's very cool to actually recreate that book uh, and publish it. And it's, it, it is a diary and it tells the story of James Baker in his, his first year at Vokens Academy and his eventual journey to the front lines in the fight against the Orcs. And, uh, and, and it even goes beyond that because the, um, the librarian, she adds her own notes to it and, and kind of extends it and tries to find out what happened to him after the diary was found. And you even find out a little bit about what happened after the events of the Battle Mage. So it's, um, and it's full of Easter eggs about what was going on in the background while Fletcher was, uh, wasn't at Vokens and that kind of stuff. It's, it's, um, and, uh, hopefully my readers will get a kick out of it as they, uh, as they flip through and, and they, they notice all these little details that I've put in. 
Hell yeah, for sure. Because it's like reading a book, but it's got a visual experience to it as well. Absolutely. It's fully illustrated by an American artist called David North, and he did an absolutely fantastic job. Oh, yes. It's wonderful. Now, uh, switching tacks here a little bit, you have Indian and Brazilian heritage. And you've mentioned in interviews before that you never really saw different cultures depicted in works of science fiction and fantasy. So how have you tried to do your part to correct that? So, I mean, when I was, it was certainly when I was younger, I was reading um, kind of middle grade and teen books. And it was really that genre in particular that I never saw anybody who really looked like me. Um, and to be fair, I lived in the West where I, I was a minority, but I'm, you know, I always wanted to see myself in, in books. And that's part of the reason why I started writing. Every single character that I wrote had dark hair and olive skin and and often would have either my name or some kind of anagram of my name or a similar sounding name. And it's because I wanted to see myself in books and I, I wasn't seeing that in the other characters that I was reading about. And that's kind of what started me writing. So it's a silver lining and not seeing myself represented necessarily in books, in children's books when I was younger. Um, now, diversity um, in children's and teen and young adult books is is growing. You know, we're on our way. There's more and more diversity uh, in terms of ability, in terms of race, in terms of sexual orientation. Uh, all those things are growing, but, um, you know, we're still on our way. And I, I just like the fact that you include aspects of discrimination with your elves and your dwarves in the seminar series as well, and how people experience that in just a little bit more fantasy oriented way. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I think it's difficult to, sometimes people struggle to understand racism or, or look at it objectively because it comes packaged with so much in the real world. It's, it's hard to kind of separate those things out and really understand it. So what's great about writing racism into a fantasy series is that you, you kind of take all that away and you, it's, it kind of holds up a mirror to our own society and you get to see it in a, in a slightly different light which is uh, which I had a bit of fun doing. But to be honest, it, I, I didn't really write the racism in to preach or, or teach anyone anything. Um, really, it just felt like a natural extension of what would happen if you had multiple fantasy species living alongside each other. I mean, if you look at the real world that we have now, there's many, many people who are incredibly racist and, and there are various uh, groups that, that um, have intense dislike for each other you know, across the board. Um, you know, Turkey and Greece sometimes have some animosity between them, Pakistan and India. Um, and, you know, so there's, there's certainly racism in our real world. So imagine in a world where the cultures are even more different and uh, it, it's not just different races. I mean, effectively, they're different species, um, you know, with, with different biology, different genetics. So so that's something that I thought, you know, if you're going to write a realistic book, it's going to exist in that world. And it's very much the same for the social inequality in the books as well. You'll see that we're in a feudal system with nobility and commoners. You know, even in our society now, in the modern world, we have inequality and social inequality. So, of course, those things are going to appear in a, in a feudal society. So sometimes people say to me, you know, oh, this book is about that. But no, it's just reflecting what a realistic world would look like if it was a feudalistic multi-species society. Which is what all good science fiction and fantasy does. And in fact, speaking of which, we're very excited about the Summoner's Handbook, which is coming out right right around now. Or is it already out, actually? It's out now. Um, I'm currently on the last day of my tour across America. I've gone to six states in the past 10 days. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I've been promoting the book. Um, it came out, I think, on the 2nd of October. So um, if you go into any of your kind of local independent bookstore or your Barnes & Noble or it's also available on Amazon. And if you, if you read an ebook, it's on Kindle, Google Play, iBooks, etc. 
um, should be prominently displayed in the teen fantasy section. And uh, that's all the books, The Novice, The Inquisition, The Battle Mage, The Outcast. You should have it in your store. And uh, if, if you're an adult and you're thinking perhaps this book uh, might be a bit young for me, but maybe I'd give it to my nephew or something, I would like to say that it, it is a book that appeals to uh, an older audience as well. Um, I found that I have a, it's kind of like the name of the wind uh, in that even though the protagonists are teenagers, a lot of adults manage to enjoy it. And um, I have a big following in the U.S. military um, oh, for wow. some reason. I don't, I don't know why or where, <laughs> how they discovered it, but I, I, I'm constantly getting messages from um, men in uniform and women in uniform um, across the United States um, who particularly enjoyed it. In fact, I once had a, a very impassioned email from a bunch of, um, uh, of your servicemen who, uh, who go on a nuclear submarine uh, for six months at a time with no communication with the outside world. And they were scheduled to go under... Um, a week before my second book, The Inquisition, came out. And they were absolutely desperate to get it because it meant that they'd have to wait for six months. So we <laughs> sent them a box of books before. Uh, God, they sent me so much detail about how nuclear submarines worked. Um, it was kind of interesting. So there's a there's a demand for adults as well. So it's, it really does have a broad appeal. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, as a high school librarian myself, I can attest to the fact that YA novels are sometimes better than adult novels. Oh, thank you. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> And I just want to end with a real quick teaser. I mentioned science fiction and fantasy, and I hear that you've got a new science fiction series coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And how do you think your established fan base will respond to the sort of change in genre? I mean, it, the good thing is, is that it, 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 although it is science fiction, it's not kind of hard sci-fi. It's not like it takes place on a spaceship um, with extremely hard kind of mathematical, scientific kind of expressions and, and, and technologies. Um, really, the book is set in a kind of fantasy setting in many ways, and it's more how they got there that's for science fiction. Um, the story is about a group of juvenile delinquents who find themselves suddenly transported to another world that is populated by relics from history and prehistoric creatures, and they have no idea how they got there or why, for what nefarious purpose they have been placed there. And uh, it's about the mystery of solving how they got there. So it's a little bit like the Maze Runner in many ways, where you're not sure why you're there or how, but it's also like the Jurassic World in that there's lots of prehistoric creatures from different time periods. And uh, it's perhaps also a little bit like The Hundred in that it's a group of teenagers who are placed in a new environment and have to survive together, even though they have some kind of criminal elements to them. Oh, I love it. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you. And uh, that book is called The Chosen, and it's book one in the Contender series, and it's coming out in May 2019. Okay, we're definitely looking forward to that. And yeah, that does sound somewhat in the same vein. So that, that works well for your fan base, I think. I mean, there's sword fights and that kind of stuff, just like the Summoner series. So it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not laser, laser <laughs> guns and, and, and spaceship fighting. So um, I, hopefully they'll go on, get on with it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to transition to a new series, especially when so many people have enjoyed your previous one. But uh, it's a series I've been dreaming of writing for such a long time, and uh, I can't wait for everyone to read it and, and see why I've, I've moved on. All right. Well, we can't wait. Thanks so much, Taryn Matharu, for talking to us today about The Summoner's Handbook. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. And I was fortunate enough to get an advance review copy of The Summoner's Handbook, which came out, I believe, in October 2nd, early in the month. And it's just such a great little piece, uh, whether you're someone who wants to kind of have a series like this for a child in their family, because it is a YA novel, but it's so good even for fantasy fans of adult age. So definitely check it out. Cool. But we're going to actually be having a couple of different authors 
in our bonus feature for the Den of Geek podcast over the next couple installments. So be on the lookout for that. We have got some really great graphic novel uh, writers and other kinds of writers to share with you um, leading up till the end of 2018. So until then, that's going to be it for this edition of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the November 2018 early edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind the scenes content from your favorite television shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.